The Lord is good to me. Amen. Amen. All right. Some of you are not sure. The Lord is good to me. Amen. Amen. On your worst day, he is good to you because if you know him, you got a home in heaven. So the worst day you'll ever have for all eternity is on this earth. So every day is a good day because heaven's in our view and heaven's in our future. I want to ask you to take your Bibles, turn toward the back. Uh, when Paul is writing some letters to some individuals that he has invested in, uh, Timothy and Titus. So if you go past the New Testament Gospels and Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians, and you'll get down somewhere in there toward the end. If you've gone to Revelation, you've gone too far. Actually, you've not gone too far. You're in a, you're in a good book, but you need to back up a little bit to... Uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. I want to talk about leading by example. It is time for leaders to lead by example. We are in a leadership crisis in America today. People don't know where leaders are going to come from. And if we're going to step down in leadership, there's a lot of talk about us being the leader of the free world as a nation. We used to be leaders in education. We're not leaders in education anymore. We used to be leaders in going and caring for the world. Oftentimes, other people are ahead of us. And the church always used to be the leader of setting the tone of a community. That's not always the case anymore. Francis Schaeffer said that leadership aversion for the sake of personal peace and affluence is biblically indefensible. In other words, if we back away from leadership because it will cost us something, that is biblically indefensible. So let, let, let me just start with this. Does anybody ever listen to you when you talk? This way means yes, this way means no. Now, don't look at your wife or your husband during this time. Does it, when, when you talk, does anybody ever listen to you? Yes or no? Yes? Then you're a leader. Because you have enough influence for somebody to listen to you. So you may not be a leader on a profile of what you think a leader is, but because somebody listens when you talk, you have influence, and leadership is influence, and influence is leadership. Today, we've got 30 people in Atlanta helping a church plant uh, that we started supporting a year ago. They're exercising leadership. They're going into the community, helping a young pastor who's trying to build a church to make a difference in a changing community. And so those 30 people have been on the ground this weekend and on the ground this morning trying to use their lives to make a difference in the lives of other people. That's leadership. So we lead by example. Now you'll see a lot of things in your notes and I'm going to build on that trying to help you and help me get ahead and you to stay with me. So let's look at the instructions on Titus regarding leadership. Now Titus was a Greek that Paul had won to Christ and he's been planted in this place called Crete to do a work but he's a little tentative about who he is, his skill set, what he's able to do. And so Paul writes in this letter in verse 5, chapter 1 in verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete 
that you would set in order. That term, set in order, is a medical term for setting a bone. That you would fix, set in order, get things right, back to normal. What remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. I always thought that was a dog that was a real ugly dog, but uh, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able, look at what all of this is for, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So the leader is one who exhorts in truth, teaches truth, and refutes that which is not truth. So what Paul is doing is he's saying it's not enough for us to, to have church Titus, it's not enough for us to come and gather and sit in our Bible studies and in our holy huddles and meditate on the Word and study the Word. We need to be able to refute that which is contradictory to what we believe. Here's what was the problem. They were content in Crete to profess Christ but not practice Christ. And so Paul says, if we're going to practice Christ... These are the kind of people that need to be out in the community in which we live. These are the leaders that need to be raised up. This is, this is what courageous leadership looks like. Paul had been in Crete. He wasn't able to finish the work, so he sends Titus to get things in order. Now, let me just say a word about that. He sends somebody to get things in order. Let me ask you, if you've been a Christian a year, two years, three years, listen, if you've been in boot camp for a matter of a few weeks, you're equipped to go fight the enemy on foreign soil. It's not like, well, when you've been a soldier for 30 years, we might think that you're ready to go to battle. No, you train, you train quick, you train hard, and you go to battle. The church is an army that is AWOL. We are AWOL. Could somebody send you to get things in order in your neighborhood? Could somebody send you to get things in order in a Sunday school class? Could somebody send you to get things in order on your job that there was the right kind of thinking at the place that you work? I, I remember the first time this family right here came to Sherwood as a Marine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I fell in love with the Bevels from the first time I met them and prayed that God would leave them here to be a part of Albany, Georgia. This was not their last stopping off place when they came here, but I prayed for it. And as I got to know Ken, here's what I knew. General's aid twice when we could not get our equipment out of Kuwait and get it to our troops in Iraq, they brought Ken in as a captain to do what a colonel wasn't getting done. 
and he set it in order. Let me ask you something. Somebody walked up to you today out here and said, hey, we got a few situations we need set in order. Can you obey the Lord and say, yes, sir, I'm on it. And then nobody has to worry about it. If there's a tsunami and a general calls him and says, I need wheels up in 30 minutes to give the President of the United States an evaluation of what, go and what is going on and what American can do in light of this natural disaster, would you sit there and say, well, you know, I know somebody you could call. Have you positioned yourself to be the point person at the time of crisis or in a time of need so that God could use you to the max in your life? Are you that kind of point person? And you don't have to be a Marine to be that kind of point person, but you got to be a student of the Word of God to be that kind of point person. You can't say, well, I don't know how to tell you how to, how to get to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, but if you'll call Sherwood Baptist Church, 229-883-1910, and ask for a staff member, I'm sure they'll be glad to talk to you. The situation demands the right kind of leadership. He's looking for an overseer, an elder. And, and listen, we do people a disservice when we do not equip you to do the work of ministry. That's, that's my role. That's a minister's role to equip to do the work of ministry. But can I tell you something? Let me get a little closer to home. All of you who are Sunday school teachers of adults, you do a disservice to your class if you're doing everything. If you're the prayer leader, shame on you for not enlisting a prayer leader. What you just said is I'm the only person in this class that can lead in prayer. If that's true, then do something about it. If you're the outreach leader, if you're doing everything, then what you've done is you've equipped a Sunday school class to sit, soak, and sour while they watch you in all your glory. Rather than training people who could step up and be leaders or entrusting people, well, I don't know if they'll do a good job. They're never going to do a good job if you don't ask. You've got to ask. And we do a disservice when as leaders we do not equip and empower and enable people to go do what God has gifted and empowered them to do. And that is to put things in order. We are here in Albany, Georgia and in southwest Georgia by the grace of God to try to put some of this community in order. Don't complain about it if you're not trying to put it in order. Don't gripe about how bad Albany is if you're not doing something to try to put Albany in order. That's the role of the church. And Paul says, find people. What kind of people? Well, first of all, they're godly examples. They're godly examples. I mean, they are known to be godly examples in the community. They're above reproach. That means in their relationship and in their conduct, they're above reproach. Not chargeable with some offense. Not inconsistent. And by the way, what he means by this is this is how the community sees them. That if they were made a leader in the church, Titus, the community wouldn't say, whoa, that wouldn't be the kind of person I would want to go to church if that's what a leader looks like. Blameless reputation, verse 6, in their marriage and in their family. Now, we don't have time to get into this. Paul probably wasn't married. It's probably probable that Titus wasn't married. But Paul is setting the standard and addressing the norm, that, that, that there's, there's 
faithful in their family. I love what Howard Hendricks used to say. Listen, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. Blameless in their conduct, verses 7 and 8. Here are the negatives. He says, the arrogant, literally self-pleasers, quick-tempered, they flare up, not addicted to wine, indicates overindulgent. That's for another sermon somewhere, but I always say to young, there's this whole group of young pastors that the, the first thing they want to talk to me about is which theological position I have and do I drink wine. That's the first thing they want to know. They want to know if I'm holy they don't want to know if I've ever led anybody to Jesus. First thing you want to know, do you drink wine? Here's my response. I would like for you to go with me to an emergency room one day and look at the body of somebody that's been killed by a drunk driver and tell me that's the biggest issue we need to be dealing with. I have walked into emergency rooms to help identify bodies of people killed by drunk drivers. Coming home yesterday from Orlando, 878 people in Georgia, just in Georgia this year, have been killed in accidents on the road. Many of them involving the use of alcohol. So, Paul says, whatever you want to, however you want to define what Paul says, Paul is saying it's not a person you can't trust behind the wheel. <laughs> not pugnacious or violent, not greedy. They should be a giver. You see, leaders don't just exegete Scripture. They exegete the culture. They speak to the culture. They peel back the layers of the culture, and they say, this is what's going on in our culture that needs to be fixed. This is how we lead. We don't blend in and become like everybody else. We stand out. That's what leadership does. Look at the positives. Hospitable. There's an open home and an open heart, hospitable. It's the opposite of arrogant. Yeah, a person who is hospitable is the opposite of arrogant. We, uh, several of us were in a conference in Orlando this week uh, on the staff, and, and I mean, you, you walked up. I mean, there were people in T-shirts, and you walk up, and you get in the parking lot, and you're not even hardly to the door. Hey, how are you? Welcome. Glad you're here today. Hey, how are you? Welcome. Glad you're here today. And I'm just sitting there thinking, there are about 45,000 Southern Baptist churches that would never have anybody that would stand out front and say, hey, how are you? Welcome. Glad you're here today. There are about 45,000 churches that say, hey, what are you doing in my parking space? That's my stinking seat there, brother. Hey, how long is this going to go? I hope none of them come. Hospitable. Listen. There are people who aren't even saved that have hospitality. For the love of God, the church ought to have it. I mean, you get a lost guy to open up a door for you. You go to some churches, it's like, there's a door. Hospitable. You don't know how to reach people? Love on them. Be hospitable. Be kind. Paul says, if you want to be a leader, you be hospitable. Loving what is good, promoting that which is good, just and upright, devout, committed to godliness, self-controlled, a person who is, who is disciplined. Listen, these are observable traits. This is not like some secret coded message inside the second chapter of the Da Vinci Code that we've got to all figure out. These are observable traits. We either have them or we don't. 
And in a world of compromise, these traits give the church credibility. When we are this way, we are saying to a world, Christ has made a difference in us. If there's a credible witness, verse 9. A credible witness, teaching sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is what makes a church healthy. Not making people feel, making people feel good doesn't make a church healthy. I mean, you could go to a doctor that would totally ignore your symptoms and your circumstances and say, go out and God bless you, but you hadn't helped them. Sound doctrine is what makes people healthy. That's a credible witness. And then rebuking false teachers, verse 9, refute those who contradict. Then look at his instructions to Titus by contrast, verses 10 through 16. Verses 10 through 16. Now, I'm not going to dive into this all the way. I'm going to give you three statements, three phrases that summarize what ungodly leadership looks like out of verses 10 through 16. First of all, ungodly leadership has wrong words, verses 10 and 11. Wrong words. We use the wrong words, say the wrong words. Wrong motives, verses 11 through 15. And wrong actions. Wrong words, wrong motives, and wrong actions. If the church is going to have courageous leadership, if we're going to be the kind of leaders that we need to be, then we need to have right words, right motives, and right actions. The world is full of people with wrong motives, wrong words, and wrong actions. We need to be people with right words, right motives, and right actions. The Puritan leader Jonathan Edwards prayed that God would stamp eternity on his eyes so that all that he viewed would be in the context of eternal consequences. Look at the instructions uh, C of, of Timothy about leading by example and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. When I was first saved, 1 Timothy 4.12 was my verse. And Terry gave it to me. I was in ministry, first church, hated the young people. I mean, my first week, my first week in my first church... I get a phone call. They've gone on choir tour. My first week in my first church, I get a phone call from the minister of music, and he says, hey, uh, meet these four students at the bus station. I just sent them home for marijuana. And I'm thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for cookies and Kool-Aid and, you know, beach trips. I didn't sign up for this. And I, to, I told Terry, I wrote Terry a letter. I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I, I don't want to work with young people. I don't like young people. And I ended up doing it for 15 years. She sent me this verse. Let no one think little of you or look down on you because of your youthfulness. But rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself to be an example to those who believe. Now, if you just back up just a little bit, let me just give, give you a context here. Verses 1 through 5, Paul is telling Timothy, you need to watch your own life. You need to watch yourself. Make sure you're fighting the right battles. 
Make sure you're standing for the right things. You need to watch yourself. In verses 6 through 11, he's saying, don't just watch yourself, but exercise your faith in this world. Show who you are in Christ in this world. And then verses 11 through 16, he's saying that we need to give ourselves for the cause of Christ. We need to give ourselves for the cause of Christ. So in verse 15, he picks up and, and he says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that the result is your progress will be evident to all. In other words, what Paul is saying to young Timothy is, no, you're not me. You're Timothy. Be all of Timothy, full of all of Jesus that you can be. This is not about personality. This is not about giftedness. This is not about talent. This is about being full of Jesus and expressing it in this world. Pay close attention so that your progress, that word means a pioneering advance into a new territory. We are making a pioneering advance into a new territory because the lostness of this region demands it. We are making progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure the salvation both of yourself and for those who hear you. Now let me just give you three things. It's not in your notes. It's not going to come up on the screen. Here's what he's, here's, here's, here's what he's telling Timothy, I think. Timothy, there's more truth for you to learn, first of all. There's more truth for you to learn. None of us have arrived. Say that back to me. None of us have arrived. None of us. We've all got something to learn. There's truth to be learned. Secondly, there are battles that are going to have to be fought. There are battles to be fought. And thirdly, there are victories to win. So why is Timothy to do all this, to take these pains, to make progress, to pay close attention, to persevere, so that you'll ensure your salvation, you're going to show people you're saved and the difference Christ has made in your life, and for those who hear you, there's going to be truth to learn. You're going to learn more about what it means to be the leader and the pastor of that church. There, there are battles that you're going to have to fight. This is not an easy road. There are victories to win. Verse 12, when he says, example, that word is for a type or a pattern or a model. You see, not everyone who has a title is a model of leadership. Now, let me give you some dangers of assuming that you have a right to lead. And, and this is our culture today. Our culture is a culture of entitlement. Right? I mean, it's a culture of entitlement. You know, I, I'm entitled I'm entitled to do nothing, give nothing, say nothing, go nowhere. I'm entitled to all of that because I live in America. Somebody else should do all of it for me. We live in a culture of entitlement. Now, why is there a danger in assuming you have, assuming you have a right? First of all, the assumption is I deserve to be respected as a leader without paying the price. I deserve to be respected, respected as a leader without paying a price. You, you remember that movie, that thing you do where the guy, where the, the bass player, you know, he never had a name. The bass player is, is, is T. Bass Player. That's his credits, T. Bass Player. You remember when he goes into the Army-Navy store and he, and he gets a uniform? 
There are a lot of people that want to wear the uniform. They just don't want to go through boot camp. There are a lot of people that want to get a medal of honor. They just don't want to risk anything to get it. There are a lot of people that want their day in the sun. They just don't want to get out of bed. You see, it's the assumption that I deserve it without paying a price. Second assumption is that you can play around the edges with truth and then still have respect. Or the assumption that my lifestyle doesn't matter. Or the desire for a title without having a servant heart. Or the obsessive need for attention and praise and recognition. You know, you didn't recognize me, so I don't think I'm just going to do anything anymore. You left my name out of the program, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to pout. And I'm going to tell everybody at Waffle House how hurt my feelings are. I'd, I'd tell everybody to drive through at Chick-fil-A, but I get through the line so quick and I can't complain to anybody. <laughs> so I'm just going to go to Waffle House and I'm going to tell How are you doing today? They didn't recognize me in the program. I didn't get my name called. Somebody forgot to honor me. You see, the assumption, that's wrong, that I want to be a leader so I get my name in the program. I want to be a leader so I can be recognized. Listen, some of the greatest leaders in this church, you don't even know their names. They're just doing their job faithfully. I'm going to tell you, there's some leaders right now that are wiping some babies' behinds and cleaning up the mess your kid made and putting it in the pampers and dropping it in a pail so that when you get them, it's clean. Do you go back there and help clean up messes? Or you just want everything to be clean? Well, I'd go back there if you put my name on the screen. The thought that people owe us anything lack of a humble or teachable spirit, an unwillingness to go the second mile. Listen, if we don't get this right, we're going to be in a leadership crisis in America and in the church in the next 10 to 15 years. The speech, the words that open doors are cause people to stumble. That's what he's talking to Timothy about. Your lifestyle, how you conduct yourself, your love that keeps you from defaulting into legalistic rules. The church is by nature leans toward legalism, not toward love. We lean toward defaulting with rules. You know, well, here's a rule. You need to keep that rule. And here's a rule. You need to keep that rule. Here's a rule. You need to keep that rule. Rather than saying, here's love and here's how we do it. Faith speaks clearly when love has created a hearing. Purity implies integrity. Now, look at the dynamic of credible life change. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. God's power is evident in our lives. I love this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is now not writing to an individual. He's talking to a whole church about how they are a leading example of churches. Listen, our prayer ought to be, if God would so choose that Sherwood would be a leading example of what a church ought to be. This was Thessalonica. Listen, if I was trying to figure out where to live and where to move, I would move to Thessalonica and have joined that church. Because look at what Paul says about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. You also became imitators of us. In other words, Paul says, man, when people see you, they see the life that I'm living. 
you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. This was not a church where it was easy street. Receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, you could write in the margin of your Bible, if you're happy and you know it, notify your face. <laughs> with the joy of the Lord. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. In other words, this church just wasn't known within its membership. It was known all over the region. Now, why is that important? Because Paul said this church, listen Sherwood, Paul said this church gives unbelievers no ground to reject Christ because of their lifestyle. They are such a witness that unbelievers will reject Christ, but they will not reject Christ because of this church and what they do. They might reject Christ for other reasons, but they will not reject Christ and make an excuse based on looking at this church and its inconsistency. Verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. So look at Paul does three things. First of all, he talks about a determinative action. A determinative action. They made a decision. They turned to God from idols. They had a normative reaction, serving the true and living God. In other words, they got saved and they served. Now, I'm just giving you some big $5 words so it looks like I'm smarter than I am. A determinative action and a normative reaction, they, they served God, and then that gave them a credible witness. They turned to God from idols, and they began to serve the living and true God. That was the norm. That was obvious. That was evident. The vibrant, the dynamic is what that word means. The vibrant God, the dynamic God, the true God, the integrity of their life. And so look, three things. I'm giving you a lot to write down. Three things that leaders need to do. Leaders need to remember their commitments. They need to honor their obligations. And they need to live consistently. Need to remember their commitments to honor their obligations, and to live consistently. Remember when you joined Sherwood and you read that church covenant that we have? Are you remembering your commitments? Are you honoring your obligations? Are you living consistently? Latest Southern Baptist study says that a person considers themselves faithful if they come to church once a month. Try seeing your wife one day a month. Try showing up for work one day a month. Why is it that commitment and consistency and loyalty and honoring your obligations is something we all think about when it comes to the job that gives us a check, but not to the Lord who died for us and paid the price for our sin? Why is it we go to the lowest common denominator when it comes to life and the Lord? But yet with work, we want to get a raise and we want to get a bonus and we want to get a promotion and we want to get a title. And so we'll do what we have to do to get that. But when it comes to church, we'll always back down to the lowest common denominator. Now, 
here's how we learn. We learn relationally. And you're going to have to listen fast. That's why I gave you most of the words. But before we get there, let me give you two statements. Every Paul needs a Timothy. And every Timothy needs a Paul. In other words, that simply means this. You need somebody to invest in you, and you need to invest in somebody else. You need to reproduce yourself spiritually. You need to reproduce yourself spiritually. You need to pour into somebody else so that one day when you're gone, the baton is not dropped. Now, let me ask you something. If 10 Sunday school teachers this week drop dead, who's going to take the class? Who have you trained? Who have you invested in? Who have you poured into? Well, I got another person that teaches with me. What if both of you are gone? Who's going to teach the class? Who's going to train? Who's going to invest? Who are you pouring into? Who are you taking and spilling the wisdom that you have into so that it is reproduced in someone else and they can carry the baton? Listen, we're not going to get where we need to go by ourselves. I, I don't know that with Vance Havner and Ron Dunn and, and others, I, I don't know that we ever sat down and talked about a mentoring relationship. I just asked for help. I don't know that we ever officially had some creed that we signed or anything else. So we just talked, and, and they talked to me, and I, and I listened, and I learned, and I took notes. And I, and I made myself available. Uh, I mean, let me, let me tell you how I got to know one guy. One of, the, one of the most gifted preachers and evangelists in Southern Baptist life was a guy named John Bassanio, who's now in his 80s. You know how I got to know John Bassanio? I called the state office. He was coming to speak at the state convention one day. And I called the state office and I said, I, look, I know you got somebody to pick him up at the airport. I was pastoring in Ada, Oklahoma at the time. I said, I know you got somebody to pick him up at the airport. But could I drive an hour and 45 minutes from Ada? Could I pick him up at the airport? I'll be his chauffeur. I'll get him to meals. If you want me to just drop him off and I'll go eat somewhere else, I'll get him to meals. I'll get him to his hotel and I'll get him back to the airport. And so I spent three days with John just going around. Well, there were a bunch of preachers there. You know, preachers, preachers are weird people. I mean, they're just weird. And, and there were a bunch of preachers there and a bunch of guys that thought they were somebody. And so John was there and they go, hey, John, let's go to lunch together. Hey, John, let's go. Hey, let's go to lunch together. And so they're going there. And, they, you know, and, and five of them had just walked by me. And totally ignored me. You know, I'm just kind of standing there waiting to take John to wherever I'm supposed to take him. I'm just, I'm the chauffeur. I'm the Uber driver with no money. <laughs> and they all walked by. And so John walks over and says, Michael, let's go. And I said, well, yeah, you're going to. He said, nope. So we're going. I'm riding with you. So I ride with them. And then these guys start jockeying for position. John's at the end of the table, and there's about 20 guys, and they're all jockeying at the end of position. And this is what John Bassanio does. John says, hey, and I won't tell you the name of the person, but he pastored one of the biggest churches in the West. 
He said, hey, I need you to move. Michael's going to sit down here by me. And he said, Michael who? (laughs) He said, Michael, the guy you didn't talk to when we walked in, he's sitting down here by me. I want to tell you something. I was shouting on the inside. And on the inside, I was going, (laughs) (laughs) so several years ago, John Maxwell made a list of 13 must ask questions for your mentor. These, if you want somebody to pour into your life, these are must ask questions and we're going to do this and we're going to pray. First of all, how do you define success? You ought to ask your mentor, how do you define success? Secondly, what values guide your decision? What's their worldview? What's their ethical standard? What values guide your decision? Number three, what's the most effective daily habit you possess? What's the most effective daily habit you possess? Now, I'm going to answer that right now, okay? Because I know what what you're doing. We're all going to be spiritual. We're all going to be spiritual. And what's the most effective? Spending time with Jesus. Good. Well, we assumed you were doing that anyway. Just spending time with the Lord. You know what my most effective daily habit is? Getting out of bed. Because I can't get anything done laying in bed. I never will win the battle of the blankets underneath the blankets. I got to get out of bed. If I want to get anything done, I got to get out of bed. Well, sometimes I don't feel like it. I'm going to get out of bed anyway. It's the most effective daily habit. You can sit there and just lie in bed and have a pity party all day long. Or if you want an effective habit, just get out of bed and say, Lord, here I am. What do you need me to do today? Number four, what accomplishment are you most proud of? (laughs) Getting out of bed. Um, (laughs) What accomplishment are you most proud of? Number five, what's the greatest piece of advice you've gotten? What's the greatest piece of advice you've gotten? I'll tell you mine. Vance Havner, you don't have to chase key men if you know the one who holds the keys. Greatest piece of advice I've ever gotten. I've never invited myself to speak anywhere. I've never asked anybody to recommend me to a church. I've never, listen, Vance Havner taught me as a young Christian, called to ministry. This is what he said. God knows where you are. God knows who you are. And he, God knows what he can trust you with. You don't have to chase people, send brochures, and try to figure out a way to get where God wants you to get. When God wants you somewhere, he knows how to get the attention of where he wants you to go. You never have to chase key men if you know the one who holds the keys. Number five, that's it. Number six, what do you wish you knew at my stage of life or career? What do you wish you knew? Uh, if, If you were me, what do you wish you had known when you were me that I need to know? Number seven, what's the greatest lesson you've learned from a failure? Listen, you don't need anybody trying to pour into your life that won't admit that they failed at something. Number eight, what are you learning right now? 
What are you learning right now? Number nine, what positive thing do you see in me that I need to focus on developing? What positive thing do you see in me that I need to focus on developing? Number 10, what obstacle that I don't see is preventing me from moving forward? That, by the way, that's why they're called blind spots. What obstacle that I don't see is preventing me from moving forward? Number 11, what must I do to overcome that obstacle and keep growing? Number 12, what do you hope to teach me during this mentoring relationship? And number 13, what can I do to make this process worthwhile for you? Maxwell said, is it possible to grow without a mentor? Certainly. But with a mentor, you can grow exponentially. It speeds up your growth. You see, everybody wants to be a leader, but not everybody wants to pay the price. And you and I cannot be leaders in the cheap seats. We can't be leaders waiting for somebody else to do it. We have to step up and stand up and stand out if we want to impact this community for Christ, to be courageous. There are churches all around this country trying to figure out how to keep their doors open. You are a part of a church trying to figure out how to get more people in the doors. But that begins when we leave here. The mission field starts where the church property ends. And you and I, to be the leaders that we need to be, need to seize the opportunities that God has given us. Listen, the persecuted church would love to have an opportunity to invite people without being thrown into jail. We have that opportunity. We have that freedom. All they can say is no. There are people that walk around your neighborhood periodically, ride bicycles, come up with brochures, and they knock on your doors, and you tell them no, and they'll send somebody back a few months later to knock on your doors because they believe more in a lie than we believe in the truth. We've got three weeks to get ready for company. And to do that, we need to go fast track as leaders on who we are, how we live, what we say, what we do, and seize every opportunity that God gives us to make a difference in this community. Would you pray with me? Just draw a circle around yourself that seat that you're sitting in and just ask yourself a question right now. Lord, what do I need to do to be the leader that I need to be? What do I need to do? What do I need to change? How do I need to think? What do I need to stop? What do I need to start? What do I need to to do to be the leader that I need to be? Second question. 
Who do I need to be pouring into? Who do I need to be spending time with, taking with me, modeling ministry? Who do I need to be pouring into? Third question. As a leader, remember, anybody listens to you when you're talking, you're a leader. No matter how young, how old, how educated, how much money you have, that has nothing to do with it. Somebody's listening to you, you're a leader. Who do I need to invite to follow Christ? Who in my neighborhood? Who in my community? Who at work? Who at school? Who do I need to invite to follow Christ? Who do I need to invite to come to church? What do I need to do? How do I need to change? Because if, if, if we just do what we've always done, we're not leading. And it's very easy as a Christian, the longer you're a Christian, to just coast to glory and just kind of put it in neutral, glad you're saved, glad your family's okay, and just kind of coast to glory. But that's not, that's not what God called us to do. The Great Commission is still in effect. It's going to take courage for us to get out of our comfort zone, make the changes we've got to make to reach the people that we need to reach. I don't think that our problem is that we don't have the heart to do it. I think our problem is we don't will ourselves to do it. We just wait for somebody else to do it. Father, as a church, we want to be a Thessalonica. We want to be a church known for taking our stand with Jesus. We want to be a church with a healthy reputation that is spread abroad in such a way that if people in this community across the street or the other side of town or in Leesburg or Sylvester or Dawson or Tifton or wherever they are, if they reject Christ, it will not be because they have seen something less than Jesus in us. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Through our life and through our lips, we want to model Jesus. Help us to do that. Help us to be that church entrusted with that opportunity to make an incredible difference in the lives of children and young people, and singles, and young families, and senior adults. Across all lines and all barriers, let us be the place where hope lives and dwells. Give us the courage to do that which you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen.